0: All right, let's turn back to John, the 13th chapter, and we'll continue our studies in the Upper Room Discourse. As we saw last week, uh, the Lord's concern in this, um, in this discourse is to prepare the apostles for his departure. The Lord was leaving, they were staying, and he was, he was concerned uh, with their preparation this is his legacy, something in the nature of a, of a last will and testament which was designed to prepare them to stay behind and fulfill the uh, task that he had given to them. And as we saw last week, he began by washing their feet, which was a utilitarian sort of thing. Their, their feet were dirty and they needed to have their feet washed, but it was far more significant than merely uh, uh, cleansing of, uh, an act of cleansing of defilement from their feet. It was an, intended to be an illustration of something of spiritual significance. As we saw, it's a, it was a parable of the ministry which the Lord himself undertook. He laid aside the robes of his glory. He became a man. He, in effect, became a servant. And as Paul tells us in Philippians, became obedient as a servant even to death on a cross. That, that sort of, of ignoble death. And uh, then having accomplished that purpose and having lived a life of servanthood... He ascended to the right hand of the Father and again put on the robes of his glory. And his actions in the upper room are, I believe, a parable of the ministry which he undertook. Um, secondly, we saw that it was a lesson for the disciples in humility, a picture of the kind of ministry of servanthood which they were to carry out. Servanthood is the name of the game. That's what God has called us to. And he wanted to illustrate that through his actions. And then, as we saw, it's a picture of salvation its necessity, and its nature. We have been bathed all over by the washing of regeneration, but there's the need to be cleansed daily from defilement. As we walk through the world, our feet are defiled, and we need to be cleansed. And the point that we made is not only that we need to cleanse ourselves by confession of sin, but rather we need the help of the entire body in, the, in this undertaking. It really takes all the members of the body working together to make one mature Christian. And uh, we need to help one another by pointing out areas of disobedience in one another's life and doing so in a very loving and gracious way, but in a very straightforward and frontal way uh, to talk about those things that, that we're struggling with, to confront one another graciously with, with areas of, of disobedience and rebellion and uh, gently and lovingly to wash one, wash one another's feet. Now, uh, in verse 17, we have something in, uh, of the, na- in the nature of a, of a beatitude. Um Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, it's almost impossible to, to reproduce all the, uh, the meaning of that, of that verse in English translation. What he said was something like this. If you know these things, and you do, you are blessed if you do them, and you may not. Now the point that he's making is not that individuals there in the upper room might at various times not do these things. Rather, he's saying that there there may be some here who will not do them. And, of course, he had in his mind the fact that Judas was present among them. Because he goes on to say in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if you'll notice, uh, the at least in my translation, the New American Standard, uh, the last part of that verse is in, is in caps, which indicates it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Do you know where it's found? It's a psalm. That's right. Do you know where? All right. Psalm 41, nine. The uh, side note uh, will tell you that that's where it's found. Uh, very good reading there. And if you turn back to Psalm 41, it's a prayer of David or a psalm of David. And it is uh, something in the nature of a prayer. And uh, it was a time when uh, when David was down and out. Uh, it's a good psalm to read when you're down and out. And uh, he says in the course of the psalm something like this. The American Standard translates it, My close friend... Uh, uh, one that I trusted in, one who ate bread with me or one who eats bread with me, it's actually a present tense, one who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. My close friend, one I trusted in, one who is eating bread with me, he lifted up his heel against me. That uh, expression, to lift up one's heel, is uh, is an idiom for kicking someone. Like an animal would lift up his heel, he would, he would kick at you. Now what he's saying is that a very close and intimate friend, someone who is actually eating bread with him at that moment, is going to kick him. Now, that's David's point, and he was speaking out of his own experience. Some, some uh, episode in his life, perhaps the betrayal of, of uh, Hithophel or, or his son Abs- Absalom or, or something of that nature. We simply don't know the precise circumstances, but he's referring to a time in his life when someone betrayed him. Now, when Jesus quoted that psalm, everyone in the room knew what he was talking about because these were Jews and they were familiar with the Old Testament. And that verse, I believe, is the key to understanding what happened next in the upper room. If we don't understand that verse, we simply don't know why Jesus did what he did. So put that in the back of your mind. He who is eating my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 19, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur you may believe that I am he. Now Jesus here is speaking as a prophet back in Deuteronomy 18, the credentials of a prophet are given, and one of, the, uh, one of the marks of a true prophet is that he predicted the future with 100% accuracy. A prophet in Israel had to bat a 1,000 in order to be a true prophet. He couldn't miss every once in a while. Jean Dixon is not a prophet because she misses, and uh, others are not prophets uh, unless they predict the future with 100% accuracy. Now, there are other marks of a prophet that he had to be an Israelite, he had to be like Moses, someone that God revealed revelation to uh, directly, face to face and so forth. But the prime requisite of a prophet is that he had to be able to predict the future with uh, with absolute accuracy. He could never miss. And if he missed, he knew he was a false prophet. And uh, the directive was to take him out and stone him because they weren't to have false prophets in Israel. And what Jesus is doing here is claiming to be a prophet. He's saying, I'm predicting what will occur so that you may believe that I am he. And then he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, why did he say that? You see, he's saying it's, a, it's, it's an extremely important thing to believe me, because uh, if you believe me, you're believing the one who, who sent me. If you reject me, you're rejecting the one who sent me. Now, remember, he's talking to Jews, and they knew that Jesus claimed to be sent from the Father, who was the God that the Israelites worshipped. So he's saying it's a very serious thing to reject me. If you reject me, you're rejecting Yahweh, the God that you worship. Now, why is he doing this? Well, I'm convinced that he's doing it because he's reaching out to to Judas. He wants to, Judas to see uh, the enormity of, uh, of his sin. He's actually rejecting God by his actions. And uh, as a close associate is lifting up his heel, he's kicking it at, at the Son of God. Now, let's look at verses 21 through 30, and I'll read the entire section, and then I want to come back and try to recreate the scene for you. When Jesus had said this, and it is these words in 18 and following he became troubled in spirit now remember jesus was fully a man as well as fully god he experienced all the emotions all the human emotions that you and i experience and uh, in this in this particular at this particular point in the upper room the lord became emotionally shaken that's the meaning of the term he was shaken by what he had said and we'll see why in a moment and he said, truly, I tr- uh, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That would be John. He always refers to himself anonymously in this book as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think probably because uh, John realized what a remarkable thing it was that Jesus loved him. He knew his own heart, and he knew how unlovely he was. He, remember, was the son of thunder who never seemed to do anything quite right. And uh, it always staggered him to realize that the Lord loved him. He's not saying here, not trying to imply that he had any special place in the, uh, in the circle of, of Jesus' followers. He simply was, uh, to him, he just never got over the fact that the Lord Jesus loved him as he did. And so he refers to himself as the one whom whom Jesus loved. Um, Verse 24, Simon Peter, therefore, gestured to him, that is to John, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus, therefore, answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And with the morsel, that is, as he ate the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. I never read that verse without thinking of of the fact that this is the only place in the Bible where anyone is told to do something in a hurry. Uh, Haste is not a mark of the Spirit. The one thing you don't see in Jesus' life is that he was in a hurry. He always had time for people. He was always relaxed about his schedule. He had an infinite job to do, and he did it in three and a half years, and he never seemed pressured while he did it. Haste and activity is not necessarily a sign of of spiritual life. Judas is the only one who was told to do something quickly. And after the morsel then, Satan entered into him. Jesus therefore had said to him, "'What you do, do quickly.'" Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. That's striking. Probably was no more poverty-stricken person in the world than Jesus, and yet uh, he he was noted among his disciples for giving to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was Night. Now, I want to try to recreate the scene for you if I can. As you know, they didn't sit at tables as we do, at least not uh, uh, the higher sort of table that we use. They reclined at at the table, at a low table, usually in a U shape. And they laid around the edge of the table on their left elbow, which always strikes me as kind of a neat way to eat. I usually eat and then stagger off to the floor and sleep. And uh, they're right there on the floor where they can uh, combine both. And uh, I don't know what you'd do if you were left-handed in those days. I guess you learned to eat with your right hand because everyone re- reclined on their left side, leaned on their left elbow, and ate with their right hand, and their feet would be extended away from the table in this direction. And so you'd be quite close to each other. And apparently John was just to Jesus' right and, and reclining on his, on his left elbow, which would put his head up against Jesus' chest. And uh, Judas was on his left side. The left side would be one of the places of honor. And then across the table, apparently, Peter was sitting. Now, that's the scene, as, at least as much as uh, we can tell from this, from this account. Now, we read that after Jesus had made these initial remarks about faith, he became troubled in spirit. And he said, and, and his voice may have been shaking because he certainly felt the emotion of this moment, One of you will betray me. Now, the remarkable thing is that no one said, Yeah, and I know who it is. In fact, uh, they all began to ask. You know from the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke. These are usually called the synoptic Gospels because they have one way of looking at Jesus. From these accounts, we know that all of them began to ask, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And they looked around the room, and no one could pinpoint the betrayer. Now, Jesus knew who the betrayer was. In John 6, we're told that Jesus knew those that didn't believe on him, and he knew from the beginning who would betray him. He knew Judas' heart. I believe when, when he chose Judas, he knew, because we're told from the beginning, he knew, he knew. He knew that Judas was a thief from the very beginning. Uh, Judas was, carried the money bag. He was the treasurer for the group. It's extraordinary, I think, that the Lord would would give him that privilege since he knew he was a thief. And he kept dipping his hand in the till from the very beginning. He was pilfering money out of the money box that uh, was kept in common for all the all the apostles. And they didn't have a great deal of money. And Judas was stealing from all the apostles, and Jesus knew it. And yet he never betrayed Judas. He never acted in any way toward Judas that would have tipped off the apostles' To the fact that Judas was the betrayer. Now, has that ever struck you? Would you act that way, or would I? If I knew that one of the people who call themselves my intimate friend was going to betray me, I certainly would have a hard time acting in, a, in, a, in the right sort of way toward that person. I think I would have taken John aside or someone else and said, no, "I, I don't want this to get around. I don't want this to get around." But, but Judas is going to betray me. But no one knew. Not one person knew. Now, Peter could hardly stand it when Jesus Jesus said that. And he asked the question that I think we probably would have asked. He gestured to John, who was across the table, and said, Hey, who is it? Now, he didn't ask John to ask Jesus. Note that. He thought John knew because John was closest to Jesus. He was one of the inner circle along with Peter. And uh, he thought John, but not even John knew. And John, who was leaning on just, just to Jesus' right side, reclining to Jesus' right side, leaned back against Jesus and said, Who is it? And Jesus said, The one uh, to whom I hand the morsel is the betrayer. And they had a, a little loaf of unleavened bread, much like a piece of French bread or a shepherd's loaf, and he broke off a piece of it and he dipped it in the, uh, in the it was a sort of porridge made out of meat and bitter herbs that they ate at the Passover feast, and he dipped that into the dish, and he handed it to Judas. And that let John know who the betrayer was, but no one else in the room knew. Now we know from the synoptics that Judas said to Jesus, Is it I, Rabbi? <laughs> sort of the height of hypocrisy. He had already sold out. He'd already made arrangements with the Sanhedrin to crucify Jesus. The Passover plot was already in motion. He just hadn't, uh, hadn't sealed the agreement. He knew. And he says to Jesus, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said, You have said. And we're told from the account that at that point, Satan entered into Jesus, almost uh, in association with his taking the, the, the morsel and eating it. Because Judas' fate was sealed at that point. Not because the Lord Himself sealed it, or God hardened His heart, but Judas hardened His heart. You see, all the way through this meal, the Lord was reaching out to Judas, and the final act, His final attempt to reclaim Judas, was when He dipped the morsel into the into the pot and handed it to Judas. Why? Why was that so significant? I've heard of all sorts of explanations for this this uh, for His behavior. One that Judas was the guest of honor. And, that he was starting the feast in that manner, and a number of explanations. But why did Jesus use this particular method? Why didn't he say Judas is the one? Or why didn't he say, John, I'll tell you later? Why did he use this method? Well, remember the verse we read in verse 18, He who is eating my bread, present tense, has lifted up his heel against me. And when he passed the bread to Judas, it was another attempt on the Lord's part to bring Judas back into a relationship or bring him into a relationship with him he'd never had a real relationship and it was a sign to to Judas of his of his treachery and his duplicity but the lord's desire to bring him back and Judas at that point hardened his heart and it was then that satan entered into his into his heart and he was beyond control it started with His dipping his hand into the tail, and it ended with his crucifying the Lord. All the way through, he continued to harden his heart at every attempt that the Lord made to bring him back. And then we're told that he went out immediately, and it was night. Very uh, poignant symbolic words. It was night, and it certainly was for Judas. One One of the things that strikes me about this passage is how much in control the Lord is. He never loses control of the situation. Uh, Jesus was the most free individual who, who, who ever lived. He was a servant all through his life, but he was totally free. He says to Pilate, no one takes my life away from me. <laughs> no one could touch him. And even in the hour of his death, he's in control. He's controlling events. He's making certain that he dies on the Passover. He's, he's asking Judas to do what he's doing more quickly, to hurry the events along so he'll die on the Passover. You know, the Jews did not want to crucify Jesus on the Passover. It was a high holy day. And it was an affront to them to have him hanging on the cross over the Passover. But the Lord himself engineered events. And the Father engineered those events. So if the Lord died on the Passover day when they, were, when they were killing the Paschal Lamb. They were killing the Lamb of God. He did that. He controlled those events. And that's why he said to Judas, what you have to do, go and, and do more quickly, literally. Do it faster. The Lord's in control all the way through. What is so striking is that his efforts throughout this entire uh, episode are directed toward bringing Judas back right to the very end until Judas hardens his heart so irrevocably that he cannot come back. I just want to remind you again, that's the kind of Lord we have. As we saw this morning in the life of Hosea, that's the sort of Lord who keeps reaching out to us right to the very end. Now, Judas was not a believer. He did not believe he was an outsider. He would, We would say a non-Christian. And yet the Lord loved him. He was an enemy of the cross. He was trying to undo everything that Jesus did. There was nothing in his life that reflected the truth that Jesus taught. He was a thief. He was dishonest. He was a hypocrite. Nothing in his life that exemplified the teachings of his Lord. There's very little in his life that, that was commendable. And yet the Lord loved him. The Lord knew he was his enemy. The Lord knew he would betray him at the first opportunity. The Lord knew he had no use for his program in his kingdom or his God. But he loved him. Now, what does that say to us about the enemies of the cross? Can we do any better than the Lord? I'm sure you saw the article in the, in the papers yesterday about the Metropolitan Church in Boise. The gay community now has a church in Boise. It's nothing new to us from the Bay Area, but, but it's here in Boise. What should our attitude be toward the pastor of that church and the people in that church? What about the representatives of various cults who come knocking on our door to gain entrance? The people up and down our street who's, who uh, are drunken, uh, who are immoral. What about their cocktail parties? All the other things that they're involved in. How should we feel about them? What about the people that oppose us, who laugh at us when we when we share the gospel with them? Or who reject us and our Lord? Or resist us in our attempts to, uh, to win their love? What should our attitude be? Not one of scorn, not uh, retaliation, not even indifference, but love. See, that's the pattern that the Lord laid down for us. I, there's a verse in 2 Timothy that I shared with the teachers this past week that that I would hope would be the really the hallmark of our Christian experience here in Boise. Paul says to Timothy, the servant of God must not be argumentative, but be kind to all, patient, gentle, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If... Per adventure, God may grant release to those that have been captured by Satan to do his will. You know, people, non-Christians are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Non-Christians are victims of the enemy. We as Christians need to learn how to act in the presence of people who have been victimized. They've been captured by Satan to do his will. And what will release them? Harshness. Laying the truth on people and lashing them with the word of God? No, we do need to be truthful and straightforward with people and and bold in our proclamation of truth. But Paul's very clear. What wins them is a loving heart, an acceptance of them as people, though we may not accept what they believe, Couple with proclamation of the truth. How shall we act this year on the campus with our non-Christian friends or in the office or wherever we are? After the example of, of Jesus in the upper room. All right, do you have any questions? Our question was, "Are there any other uh, situations where the Lord confronted Judas this way? We're not given any other uh, other time in in the Gospels when he did. This was the only time when he named him as the betrayer, and I'm inclined to think that he that he didn't confront him any other time other than perhaps to look at him, look at him when he was teaching, or uh perhaps in other ways, to demonstrate his love for him even though he knew that he was was the betrayer. But no, we don't know of any other time that he confronted him this directly. He never rebuked him for being a thief, as far as we know. But I think uh, there there must have been many ways that the Lord indicated to Judas that he knew and uh, cared about him. Why did he tell John? Well, because John asked. And uh, this was the time, I think, for the betrayer to be revealed. The next verse says, after this, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. That is, He's received ultimate honor. The, the events of the of His death, burial, and resurrection begin, and His glorification, which is a part of that. And it was just necessary for the betrayer to be revealed and the plot to be set in motion and, and consummated before He could be glorified. So it was just the time. So. Yes, they would. His question was: "Would?" Uh, Les's question was: "Would they use the same uh, yardstick uh, in Jesus' day as as we do?" Yes. In fact, they would be even more stringent in its application. You have the credentials of a prophet laid out in Deuteronomy 18, and presumably they, at least in times when they were spiritually on top of things, they evaluated their prophets on that basis. Yes, there there are two figures in the Old Testament. Actually, more, but at least two figures in the Old Testament that uh, are summed up in Christ's life and ministry. One is the king, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, the one that came through the line of David, and the other is the prophet. Now uh, there is a great deal of truth in the Old Testament about the king and how the King, what sort of person the king is to be, and Jesus fulfilled all of those, all of those uh, uh, characteristics and predictions. But uh, there is also the prophet. and they were to use those credentials to evaluate all the prophets that came, but they were also to be used to recognize the prophet par excellence who is to come. And uh, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses was told that when that prophet would come, or any prophet would come, and he would fulfill the criteria that are established there, they were to listen to him. And that's, that's the uh, statement, listen to him. Um, when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water, the voice of the Father came from heaven, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. And that was the father quoting Deuteronomy 18. That was the father's confirmation that this is the prophet that they were to listen to. And if they were believing, then they accepted him as the prophet. I think to the very end, he could have. His repentance was not uh, really significant because it wasn't a genuine repentance. It doesn't say that he ever repented. It just says that he was filled with remorse for what he had done. Um, It's conceivable that he could have come back to the Lord to the very end. All right, let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this glimpse into uh, into the, these events that occurred in the upper room. And uh, we're thankful that we know these things, and uh, we're blessed if we do them. We would like to have the same sort of spirit that you had toward those that opposed you, always speaking the truth and uh, being very bold and and straightforward, but always, um, always combining with our proclamation of truth, a spirit of grace, and love for people. And uh, we thank you that that comes because you indwell us, and your life is our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.